Welcome to the Successful Farming Soil Health Podcast, where we tell the stories and share the lessons of leaders in the modern soil health movement. Thank you for joining us. Here's Successful Farming Crops Editor, Bill Spiegel. When he answered a Help Wanted poster for a local dairy during high school, Gabe Brown couldn't have foreseen that experience would lead to a career that could redefine modern production agriculture. Not only did Gabe fall in love with farming while milking cows and sweeping stalls near his hometown of Bismarck, North Dakota, he even majored in agriculture and worked in the dairy barn at North Dakota State University. He was passionate about farming, and after marrying his sweetheart, Shelley, the young family moved back to her family farm near Bismarck after college. There, Gabe began farming alongside his father-in-law, Bill, very conventionally. Cash grains and fallow were accompanied by long days plowing the soil. Wet springs turned into dry summers, a constant struggle to work with Mother Nature. For 10 years, Gabe farmed that way. But by 1993, he and Shelley were on their own, and he was convinced there had to be a better way. I had a friend of mine, I made the acquaintance in the cattle business, who he started no-tailing. And he said, Gabe, you got to look at this, save time and moisture. And it just made sense. So I went 100% zero-till just because he told me so. And that was 1990, the spring of 94, 94 I no-tilled. That was the first no-till crop. And was that with the, the blessing of your father-in-law? Oh, no. Realized my father-in-law... I started then in about 80, 1986, I started renting some other land, and I plowed. I, I bought a plow and a pony drill and was plowing and, and started farming my own rented land because my father-in-law was still farming. Well, then in 1991, uh, my in-laws decided what they were going to do. You know, we thought we moved back, we'd be able to buy the whole place, but they decided, well, we got three daughters, we're going to sell them, each a third to farm. Now, fortunately, they let us buy the home place, but that was kind of a shock to us. We we had not expected that. But, but anyway, from 91, then my father-in-law stepped back. They retired, moved to town. So then I could finally make decisions on everything. So when I made the decision in the winter of 93 to go no-till, you know, my father-in-law, there's nothing he could say because he didn't have any control over it anymore. So, so you sold all your tillage equipment. Yep. You bought a no-till drill yep. in 1994, correct? Yep. yep. Was that a new new drill? No, it was a U750 John Deere 15-foot drill. Yep. And at that time, how many acres were you farming? There or shortly thereafter. It didn't take long. I was about at 2,000 cropland acres. And what was the crop rotation then when, when early on when you started using that no-till? Well, realize my father-in-law's crop rotation was half summer fall, half crop. And the crop was mostly spring wheat, a little bit of barley, a little bit of oats, maybe oats, once in a great while. So when I started farming, I was mainly planting uh, uh, wheat barley, oats, because that's what I'd learned from it. In 1994, the first year I no-tilled was my first pea crop, where I planted peas. And 1995, I think it was, was my first uh, winter triticale hairy vetch. I mixed those together and started planting them. 1996 was my first year with corn. I also planted quite a bit of alfalfa, too, back then, you know, and as I was going through those years of hail, I just, you know, I couldn't afford anything, so I put quite a bit of alfalfa in. So, let's go back to that 1994, your first peak crop. Yep. Um, you were used to cereals, yep. and then you brought in a legume. Yep. Why? 
Well, 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen above every acre. You know, I can read things like that since I grew up in town. I read things like that. It just makes sense. I read about no-till. It just makes sense. I had learned from my father-in-law. I had learned through going to school about these things. But I still had an open enough mind, and I've always been pretty inquisitive. I want to, you know, if it makes sense to me, I'm going to try it, do it. So I looked at that. It just made sense. I need to plant a legume to take advantage and fix some nitrogen. That's why I did originally. Now, after a few of those years of hail, I couldn't borrow money from the bank anymore. Yeah, I was going to plant legumes, you know, even more, cycle more in because I couldn't afford any synthetic fertility. So you you had the pea crop, you yep. got the the nitrogen fixing capability of yep. that. You you brought in winter triticale, then you brought with in hair, corn with hairy vetch with hairy winter triticale because the grass legume together. Yep. Okay, then so, I brought in corn. Yep, and and so you you kind of I mean you went out on a limb. I mean this is oh, oh, yeah. brand new to, to oh, your yeah. your yep. thought process. Yep. Tell me, you've talked about the hailstorms a couple yep. of times. Our listeners here probably don't know about yep. your your yep. situation with hail. So describe those few years? Well, 1995, I had 1,200 acres of springweed in that year. I realized I was trying these other uh, crops, starting to, but um, still was going to do what I was most comfortable with, you know, on a large part, percentage of the acres. So I had 1,200 acres of springweed in. The day before I was going to start combining, I lost it all to hail. Just one hailstorm. I mean, it was, I'll never forget, that hailstorm was so bad that there was hail the next day still beside the buildings, you know, it was that bad. And so that was devastating. One year, you know, the bank said, I said, I can't pay back operating, but I had livestock. We made the interest payments. And so, okay. The next year, 1996 come along and then I had added corn to the rotation. You know, I, I lived a bit more peas because I did have the peas combine there before that we lost the wheat to hail there in 95 but uh, then the bank made me take hail insurance. The first year I didn't have any, you know, and so that was pretty devastating. Uh, that second year, that 1996, that storm occurred before any of the small grains were harvested. We lost 100% hail again. So there's two years of nothing, you know, and you're like, wow, this sucks. My wife and I, <laughs> off-farm jobs, I took an off-farm job. You know, she was working part-time. She started working full-time off-farm. You know, then because we got to pay bills. Now, I was fortunate our land we had on contract for deed with my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. So, you know, they're not going to foreclose on us. But the bank, we made enough with the livestock to make the interest payment. But then I got a mountain of debt because two years operating, you know. And um, so that was pretty devastating. And 1997 came along. We dried out completely. Nobody combined around our area. We were able to scrape enough feed together for the cow herd, but barely, you know, and so there was no crop income there. True, I did not have too much invested besides the seed cost because the bank didn't loan me any money for synthetic fertility or anything. So, but I wasn't getting out from under any of that debt. 1998 came along, and in late June, we lost 80% of the crop tail. The only good thing there in in 1998, that hailstorm came early enough. I was able to go in, and that's where I planted like the cowpea and sedan grass together, and because I, I needed to grow forage for the livestock, and it was kind of my first foray into cover cropping and that, and trying to get some diversity. The good thing about it was I didn't have the money to buy twine even 
So I couldn't cut that cowpea and sedan grass and bale it. So what I did, we just turned the cattle out on it and winter grazed out on there. And that really taught me a good lesson. Cows got four legs for a reason, you know, and why am I putting up all this hay and hauling it and feeding it? Why not just let the cattle graze? So you had four years of disaster. Yep. I guess why did I stay farming? Why? Yeah. Why yeah. would you stay farming? I'm just that stupid. <laughs> you know, my wife, I, I joke in my book, I, uh, I joke about, you know, that I was somewhat beginning to question my career, but my wife was questioning her choice of husbands, you know, because it was like, this is stupid. It's just crazy. But here's the interesting thing. Okay. Four years of disaster. None of my other neighbors had all four years. There was one neighbor that got hit three years, and a bunch of them got hit two years. But I was the only one with four. I thought God was trying to tell me so, and there was no way I was going to quit because it's all I ever wanted to do. So I stuck with it. In 1999, Gabe harvested his first crop in four years. He didn't use any synthetic fertilizers because there was plenty left over from ruined crops. Slowly and surely, he and Shelley began paying debt with proceeds from grain and by selling reputation bowls. They both kept their off-farm jobs. My off-farm jobs, though, my first job, I pushed broom in a warehouse for minimum wage, $3.25 an hour. And it wasn't like it was I was getting this influx of money. Right. And right. my wife was minimum wage, too. So yeah, At that time, you had a couple of kids. You yeah. Had, you had a family yeah. to feed. And our daughter had some serious health issues. She had scoliosis, and she had to be in a brace all the time, a body brace. And insurance wouldn't cover that. And she was going through two a year, and they were costing like $4,000. So we, we how do you pay for that, you know? That was a challenge, too. Gabe, uh, we'll get to the resiliency yeah. of your soils here yeah. here in a bit, but the resiliency of you and your family, I mean, that's that's tough sledding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Faith I, kept us going. We became more involved even with the church. When something like that's going on, who are you going to lean on? Well, you lean on the rest of your family members, but realize I, my family wasn't from a farmer ranch, so they didn't understand this. Now, my wife's parents were very supportive, but they didn't give us any money or stuff financially. And they had never experienced that type of hardship before. So who do you lean on? You lean on your faith, you know, and, and that was very important to us. Gabe, yeah, I don't want to minimize that at all, because uh, I think that's a true testament yep. to faith. You took lessons, though, from yep. the disasters yep. and and how you implemented those lessons, which I want you to expand on here in a minute, is is pretty remarkable. I don't know of a whole lot of farmers who would actually be able to to take those lessons, yep. those principles yep. and turn them into something. Well, and realize back when I was going through this, nobody talked about the five principles of soil health. You know, that came later. But. During that time, I, I've always just really enjoyed the native prairie. And I, I really like the cattle business. And I spent a lot of time out there on the native prairie. Well, you start observing things out there like, you know, all the different species there is and why some years one species will thrive, the other one won't. Well, why don't we apply that same thing to cropland? And the beautiful thing about growing up in town, like I said, is Everything was new to me. So I wanted to observe and learn everything. And it's still that way to me. I'm, I'm just fascinated by 
this whole, not only soil health, particularly ecosystem function and now human health, but you learn in a way of observation. And I think we've lost that in production agriculture. We've lost the ability to observe and then adjust our operation according to what we observe. We've lost that. Now it's all about a recipe card. That's not the way nature functions. So at the time, you know, how I observed things. Well, after that first hailstorm, you got a mat of residue, you know, this crop material on the soil surface. With that no-till drill, you know, everybody asks, well, are you going to burn it or what? And I, no, we're just going to seed into it, you know, and you learn, boy. Then all of a sudden, man, that next year, crop looked really good till the next hailstorm because we had that armor on the surface. You know, we had that that later on there, protecting that soil, keeping soil temps down. We didn't lose the moisture to evaporation. Then another hailstorm, it's even more. Well, all of a sudden, I'll never forget, all of a sudden I could saw an earthworm or two in the field. We never used to see. There was no earthworms when we tilled, you know. All of a sudden now, gee, the soil's alive. You know, by the third year, I'm noticing, man, this soil, you know, it smells different. There's soil aggregation. You could just tell when you walked on it. Now, all of a sudden, more wildlife starts showing up. And you observe these things, and it was a whole change. Coming up, Gabe describes the five principles of soil health and how he's been able to reduce the use of purchased fertilizers while capitalizing on how Brown Ranch has diversified to include dozens of farm-raised products. So stick around. This podcast is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot BioProven. We all know a few fair-weather folks. They're around when the food comes out. Oh, yeah. Nowhere to be found when the cows are out. With all life's uncertainties, you want a reliable partner. With you, rain or shine. When it comes to nitrogen, there's a new, predictable choice. Pivot Bioproven. The tiny nitrogen-producing microbes that have a big impact on your bottom line. Pivot Bioproven. Predictable. Productive. Weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot Bio Proven. Those lessons, I think, are, are lessons that others are trying to learn. And, and, and you've kind of paved yep. the way for that at speaking engagements and, and, and things like that. But talk about those, those principles again. You talked about the five principles yep. uh, briefly, but uh, kind of elaborate on those a, a bit, if you will. Well, and what it's come down to is I, I try to put together my presentations in a way to show people God was showing me this through a series of what many call natural disasters. To me now, looking back, I tell people, yeah, it was hell to go through, but it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me because, you know, I already started no-telling. That made sense. So that's the first principle, least amount of mechanical, chemical disturbance possible. And we got to add chemical in there because producers and others need to understand anytime a producer goes, whether it's to till or to use chemical or fertilizer herbicide, it's going to have compounding cascading effects, either positive or negative, okay? You can never do something and it's neutral. It's either going to be positive or negative. Well, in my eyes, what God was teaching me after that first hailstorm, I needed the second principle, armor on the soil surface. You, you learn that, okay? Then I started to diversify, as I talked about earlier, the crop rotation. Well, I observe it in native prairie, how diverse that is. Why aren't we doing that on cropland? Well, after I grew that first year of peas in 94, 1995, the crop, and it was wheat that I followed peas with, those fields looked better. I could tell this soil is better because I planted a pea crop there the year before, is what I attributed it to. Well, 
That's just a lesson in diversity. We need more diversity. So that's the third principle. Fourth principle, living root in the ground as long as possible throughout the year. I saw that after 1998 when we had that hailstorm in June. I planted the cowpea sudan grass. Now we have a living root for much longer throughout the year. Win-win situation. Learn that principle. Also that same year is when I grazed that cowpea and sudan grass with my beef cows, animal integration. We integrated animals onto that cropland the next year, 1999, on the land where we had grown that sorghum and cowpeas, grazed cattle on. It was an excellent crop that year on that land, even though we didn't add any synthetic fertility. And that just shows me the importance of animals integrated onto the cropland. Now, can we improve soil health without animals? Sure. But they're another step. And how far people want to go, that's up to them. Gabe's ranch includes 5,000 acres, most of which is intended for grazing. Of that, there was 2,000 acres of what we consider native pasture. To our knowledge, it's never been tilled. And then there was approximately 2,000 acres of cropland. Now, we've seeded well over half of that back down to perennials now, too, back into a lot of uh, quote-unquote native species and that for grazing. And then there's the, the farm ground of it. So we're primarily a livestock enterprise. We have about uh, 250 cow-calf pairs, and we'll raise those calves and grass finish a good part of them. And then we have a flock of approximately 150 ewes, and we'll grass finish those lambs. My son will farrow about 25 hogs. They're all raised out on pasture, pastured pork. And we have about 1,400 land hens on pasture. We do some broilers. Uh, then our grains will will grow everything from corn, rye, winter triticale, hairy vetch, barley, peas, oats. Uh, haven't grown sunflowers in a few years now, but a wide variety of different cash crops. And then we also do some vegetables. And most years we'll have in about 10 acres of vegetables and that all gets sold as fresh vegetables. Uh, we now have uh, started orchards, and they're just we're just starting to get the first production from some of the apple trees now. So that's another just kind of sideline business. You grow a tremendous amount of produce with, as you say, no synthetic fertilizer. Yep. Tell me what that means. I mean, how are you able to accomplish yeah, that? Yeah. First, I got to tell people, I do not expect or encourage anyone to totally remove the use of, whether it be synthetic fertilizer or manures, you know, compost, compost teas, whatever. I don't expect other people to, to do that. Back when I went through those four years and didn't have the money to buy synthetics, and then 1999 comes along and I grew a crop without any synthetics, that stuck in my mind, and I realized it could be done. Now, realize I was being indoctrinated from the current mantra, no, you've got to put it in, you're taking it out, got to put it in. But as my knowledge of how soil ecosystems function, as that grew, I learned that it's all about biology. It's all about plants taking in CO2 out of the atmosphere, photosynthesis, pumping out those those compounds into the soil and then biology feeding on that is really what drives plant growth. So in 2003, I share the story how Dr. Chris Nichols came to my operation and she said, Gabe, your soils will never truly become sustainable unless you 
remove the synthetic fertility. So from 2004 through 2007, I did split trials. I would, and realized by that time I'd started using some synthetics again, although not near at recommended rates. Okay. So I was using some. And why not? Yeah. Because I knew I really didn't need to use as much as the agronomists were recommending. Because I had been proven to me in 1999, 2000, I can still grow crops without it. But again, it goes back to the peer pressure thing, too. People were saying, no, you have to. You're removing it. You have to. Well, I started doing those split trials. So we'd, we'd fertilize part of a field at different rates and then no fertilizer on a part of it. Profitability-wise, the no fertilizer won out every year. And I'm going, this is ridiculous. So what if I grow more yield if it's not as profitable? Why do I want to do it? So 2008, we removed the synthetic fertility on our own land. And then in 2010, I removed it on all of my rented land also. And you know what? When you understand biology and you provide the home and use the five principles, what we're finding now, and Dr. Norman is finding doing those soil tests on our place, fertility levels, the amount of nutrients available are increasing. Now, realize most places on the world, there is adequate minerals in the soils and in the parent materials for profitable production of whatever wants to be grown, you want to grow. The issue becomes it's not available. It's not available to the plant. It's in parent material. How does it become available? Through biology. So as we advance soil health and improve the biological activity in our soil, these nutrients are going to become available. I often show people in my presentations how, um, I'll just say it this way. We took some soil samples on surrounding operations near mine, and then we took them on my operation, those samples. The fertility levels on my fields were considerably higher. The nutrients tested for, they tested for N, P, and K specifically. They were much higher. Well, I hadn't added anything the previous eight years. How come... My fertility's higher. And I tell people, make no mistake, all those surrounding farms have every bit as much fertility as I do, but it's not available because they don't have the biology. You give me management of any one of those operations, over time I will bring those levels up. If we focus on the principles, we're going to be able to back off the synthetics. And right now, what most producers don't understand, they're over-applying synthetics, and it's actually degrading their system because too much synthetic fertility, you're going to hurt mycorrhizal fungi populations. If you don't have high mycorrhizal fungi populations, you're going to lose the, the ability of the soil to form soil aggregates. There goes your infiltration rates will drop, your porosity will drop, no pore spaces, no home for biology, and it just keeps spiraling. We have to think about these things, but we don't. One of the favorite quotes I have that you, you have said before is uh, going back to the time where uh, we had these natural disasters that really affected you guys. One of the problems in agriculture is that most people haven't been broke enough yet. Yep. I think that's a really yep. incredible quote. And that, that it kind of forces you, if, if you are kind of at the bottom of the, of, of the heap or, or you know, yep. you're at wit's end, yep. it kind of forces you to make some pretty tough decisions. Yep. And what, what it forces you to look at is, do I really need this? 
I learned, okay, it, I couldn't go like, man, it'd be nice to feed my cattle some mineral. Don't have the money. I can't buy the mineral. Well, gee, they survived just fine. Isn't that amazing? You know, and you look at any expense differently if you've been broke. You know, do I really need that or do I just think I need it? And what my wife and I found out is, you know, we needed each other, but we didn't need all this stuff. We didn't need to go on a vacation here. We didn't need to buy a boat or a camper or anything. We don't need that. That's not things we need. Well, from a, from a farmer rancher perspective, do I really need to buy you know, a piece of equipment, like a, for instance, I'm just throwing out an example, like a bale processor. Do I really need to buy that or will a cattle eat the feed just fine, you know, without it being processed? Well, you just don't do it. Do I really need a feed bunk or can I actually put it on the ground? You learn. You just look at things differently. Right now, your your son is involved. You, you've built the farm and the ranch to a lot of diversity, yeah. which is one of your yeah. principles. But I, I, I would guess that even in the 90s, when you first learned the value of diversity, you did you ever dream that it would be no. as diverse as it no. is today? I give my son all the credit for the diversity and the direct marketing that we're doing now. That's all on him. I'll never forget one day when he called me. He was away in college and he calls me one night and he says, you know, Dad, for years, you, you preach diversity, and we got all these different crops and cover crops, but all we got is beef cattle. He said, we need chickens, we need hogs, we need some sheep. What could I say? Oh, I remember it exactly. I said, sure, makes sense to me. He come back, first thing he did in the first year was chickens, then it was uh, the sheep, and then the hogs, and, you know, it makes sense. You know, there's always a, a kind of a feeling amongst farmers that, well, that works for Gabe yep. Brown, but it probably won't work for yep. me. Certainly, you have to have a certain mindset to, yep. to make this, yep. to, to make what you're doing work. What are some of the things that farmers should be doing now that, yep. that perhaps not, based on your observations? Yeah, yep. and I tell people, no farm out there should be doing what Gabe Brown does. You need to do what fits your ecosystem, your farmer ranch ecosystem. What crops you grow are what works best in that environment. What livestock you have, if you have any, is up to you and what fits your environment, your quality of life, because that's a big part of it, and what you want to do. Don't go doing something Gabe Brown's doing just because you, you can build healthy soils. All of the things that we do on our operation are just tools. They're tools to grow the resource and to make a profit. And I, I'm not ashamed at all to tell people I'm a capitalist. I want to make money. But at the same time, I'm going to make sure that it's not going to have a negative impact on the resource. Because I, I really believe the, the saying that borrowing this land from future generations, we have to take care of it. So I tell people I am 100 percent, not 99.9. I am 100% confident that the principles I talk about can be applied to any operation where they're on land, where there's production agriculture. Okay. Obviously, we got to, can't include the Arctic and Antarctic and mountaintops, et cetera. But you put Gabe Brown on any farm or ranch anywhere in the world, and I will start to regenerate those resources in a short amount of time simply by applying the principles. So the tools, there's many different tools, but the principles are constant. It's been proven on every continent. There's people applying these principles everywhere. 
Why don't we see more of this adoption? Why we don't is because the current farm program. People are stuck in that. The next thing is pressure, financial pressure. Look, right now, how many farmers are really making a good profit right now in today's commodity prices? Not too many. Not too many. If they are, they're they're well healed, so to speak, you know? Financial pressures, and then the third is peer pressure. Do you know how often I get laughed at? People laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at them because they're all the same. It's not easy. A lot of people can't handle that pressure. Realize that everybody expected me to fail because I was a dumb city kid that started to farm and I started going no-till. Well, look, you know, I was the first person to be 100% no-till in our county. Now, Burley County, North Dakota, it's 75, 80% no-till, you know, so that they accepted that, but they're afraid to keep moving down the road. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear, and most people just aren't ready. Up next, Gabe talks about how healthy soils can produce healthier food, plus learn more from the man who wrote the book on soil health, so stay tuned. This podcast is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven, predictable, productive, weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot Bio Proven. We all know a few fair weather folks. They're around when the food comes out. Oh, yeah. Nowhere to be found when the cows are out. With all life's uncertainties, you want a reliable partner. With you, rain or shine. When it comes to nitrogen, there's a new predictable choice. Pivot Bio Proven. The tiny nitrogen producing microbes that have a big impact on your bottom line. Pivot Bio Proven. Predictable. Productive. Weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot Bio Proven. It's almost as if by adopting soil health practices, what you have talked about, your five principles, it's kind of like going back a couple of generations in agriculture. Exactly. But now farmers and ranchers are going to start getting it from many different directions because, you know, we all hear about global warming, climate change and all this. And I get phone calls from newspapers and media all the time. Gabe, what do you think of climate change? And well, you know, what do you think of global warming? I believe that's happening all the time anyway. The issue is we have too much carbon in the atmosphere, not enough in our soils. And carbon is a cycle. People always talk about sequestering into the soil. No, we need to cycle it back into the soil. So you have that facet of society that wants farmers to do the right thing because of climate change issues. But then we got to bring in the human health aspect also. You know, the United States spends more on health care than any other country in the world, yet we're either at the top or near the top, ADD, ADHD, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer, autoimmune diseases, the list goes on and on. Are farmers and ranchers to blame for all that? No, but we have to accept part of the blame. And that decline in health comes from many factors, but part of it is, we have less nutrients in the food we're, we're growing and producing today. That's a fact. Besides that, we have less uh, plant secondary metabolites and all these other factors that really affect human health. So the public has to take part of the blame because they want a cheap food. And that's just what we're giving them is cheap food. May or may not be nutrient dense. We know the nutrient density is less than it was years ago. How do we get more nutrient dense food? The consumers are starting to demand it. They want to know what's in their food, who's producing it. So we got the consumers coming at us. We got the people uh, who are worried about climate change coming at us. 
And the farmers are starting to see for themselves, hey, if I focus on soil health, it's good for my pocketbook too. So you talked about this, that we know we have less nutrient density. How do we know this? How do we know this? There are studies done out there that show that. That, you know, there's a, there's a study done by Thomas and the last name Thomas. He did a study that compared the nutrient density in vegetables and meats now compared to what it was at that time, 1940, he did some work doing some comparisons. It was done here, I think, in 2011 was the last one I saw comparing. And obviously, they can just go off of data that they had from 1940. But What you do then with uh, a lot of your uh, direct marketing, um, have you measured any of that nutrient density? Yeah, we're starting. We're actually involved in a project right now where we're looking at the nutrient density of some of the products, and it's absolutely amazing. So your your farm now then has uh, a variety of direct marketing products. Yep. Yep. Uh, you, you talk about the eggs. You you talk about apples. Yeah, just to, starting that. Yep. Starting the apples, obviously beef, lamb, pork, vegetables, yep. so honey. Yeah, quite a variety of products. Yep. Which uh, yeah, there's a hundred and last time Paul told me, and this is all Paul's business now. Paul is your she, son. Paul is our son. Yeah. Yes. There's 126 different products he offers. How do you find a market for these? I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're out on the farm. Paul started that, actually. The first year he got land hands, he started, you know how it is, word of mouth, with, with aunts, uncles, cousins, friends. And then people in town started hearing about it from relatives, etc. Next thing I know, Paul started every week. He would meet people in the Kmart parking lot at six o'clock in the evening and they would buy eggs out of the back of his pickup. Now it was illegal. Can't do that because <laughs> he wasn't inspected, but in saying that nobody stopped him. And that's how it started. And then pretty soon they asked, well, can we get some meat from you? And Paul says, well, legally I can't sell it. It's got to be processed at an approved facility, you know, a state inspected facility. So that started the ball rolling where a group got together, of us got together, started a co-op, built a processing facility. And then he could start direct marketing the meat. So he starts selling meat. Well, pretty soon it got to the point, you know, where we can produce a lot, but we don't quite have enough customers. So then he uh, got hooked up with a program called Gray's Cart, developed by the Hitsfields and in Indiana. And that is software where you have a web page. People can go online and they can order online. They pay with a credit card online. And then you have different drop points and you meet people, say, in whichever city, you know, you on your website, it says, OK, we're going to be in X city at this time. And people have a half hour window of time. They already ordered their meat and products. They paid for it. You go there and you deliver them on that that time and date. And so now, right now, Paul told me in his database, he has 8,000 customers have bought from them. And of them, about 1,500 are real regular, you know, buying almost monthly. Hmm. And so that's how you do, grow a business. So once again, you're not at the whim of, yep. of the local elevator, yep. the, the yep. local uh, yep. sale barn. Or yeah, and I tell the story how in 1999, I took a load of oats to the elevator. They, they offered me 99 cents a bushel. And I come home and I told my wife, I can't do this anymore. 
We need to add value to this. We need to determine what price we get. So that started us down the path of selling seed instead of just commodity grain and doing things like that. How do I get more value out of it? It's been a whole journey since then. All these enterprises then, Gabe, you have uh, the one thing that you have in common with a farmer from Kansas, with a farmer from Maine, so on and so forth, is is the soil. That's right. So what, what have you seen? in your soil in in a very short amount of time that you have been on the farm? Well, when we purchased that operation from our parents in 1991, NRCS came out and did some baseline soils work. They found we could infiltrate a half of an inch of rainfall per hour, and our organic matter levels were 1.7 to 1.9% on the cropland. Now, the last tests we've done, uh, we had scientists there, we can infiltrate an inch of water in nine seconds, and the second inch in 16 seconds. Now, I'm not going to say that's over every acre of our land, but where they did pull the samples, that's what it was. That's a tremendous difference. That means that virtually every raindrop that falls on Brown's Ranch is going to infiltrate into the soil. That's huge in any environment. Then our organic matter levels are 1.7 to 1.9. Today, they're from 5.3 to 7.9 on most of our, all of our cropland. So we've over tripled organic matter levels in some cases. That directly affects water holding capacity, etc. Now I'm involved with a company called Landstream that's actually measuring What we've been able to do, Dr. John Norman, who's a world-renowned scientist, is leading that. And he came out twice last year, and they pulled over 160 different four-foot cores of soil off of our property, our land. What he found, he said he had never, ever seen it before. There's aggregation all four feet. We have well-aggregated soils. The A-Horizon topsoil, now realize I didn't GPS and look what it was back in 1991 when I bought it. So all we can do is go off neighboring properties. Neighboring properties, the A-Horizon's about five inches. We've got A-Horizon 28 inches. We've grown soil, essentially, is what we've done. It's just fascinating. We never at 40 inches got to the end of the B-Horizon. You know, usually by 40 inches, you're into the C-Horizon of soil. Now, besides that, Dr. Norman said some of those soil cores are approaching 70% porosity, pore spaces, which he said he had never, ever seen before anywhere. Because the more pore spaces, the more water you can infiltrate, the more home for biology is there. So it's just critical. You know, that that's air in the soil. That's a good thing. So we've been able to change this. Did I know what I was doing when I started? No. Do I know what I'm doing now? I have a better idea. But we don't know where this is all going to lead us. And that's the fun thing about it. One of the things about regenerative ag, there's a couple things that really excite me is those of us going down this path all say it's made agriculture fun again. We're not only more profitable, but it's fun. It's exciting. It's something new. And we enjoy working with the life that it brings. That's one of the real good things. The other good thing is I have yet to meet a person in this movement that's not willing to share their story and talk to other people. You know, so often in the in agriculture, we don't want to share things with other people, you know, because, hey, I want to be one leg up on the next guy, so to speak. That's not how it is. And you see it here at these conferences. You can walk up to anybody and talk about anything and they're willing to share I think that's great. You know what I would have done early on to have anybody to talk to? 
I mean, anybody <laughs> to talk cover crops. One thing I didn't mention in my story that's really worth mentioning is in 1990, I believe it was eight, I was approached by uh, the local soil conservation district to run for their board of directors. And I did, and I, I was elected, which, you know, isn't a difficult feat, really. <laughs> but anyway, I was elected, and Jay Fear was our district conservationist. He saw what was happening on my land, and he took an interest in it. And he will tell you it helped his career because it sparked a new renewed interest why he joined the agency in the first place. But that was the first time I really had anybody that I could talk to and share things with, and that was huge. I mean, it was absolutely huge for me. You kind of practice what you preach, obviously, mm -hmm. with your desire to teach others, being gone a lot to a yep. lot of different meetings around the world, as we talked about. Yep. Your book, which uh, came out uh, in October, uh, in October yep. um, fascinating read. Well, so tell me you. a bit about Dirt to Soil. Well, I never, I never envisioned writing a book. Over the years, I've been approached by three different publishers. Gabe, you need to document this. You need to write a book. And I always told them, I'm not a writer and I don't have time. Well, Chelsea Green finally approached me and said, Gabe, what if we hire a ghostwriter to write this book for you? Would you do it? And I said, yeah, I'd consider it. And they said, we will give you a large enough advance where you can hire a ghostwriter. But they had a ghostwriter in mind. And I said, OK, we went that approach. Well, after about a half a year's process, I wasn't happy with the ghostwriter, so I fired him. And I sat over a six-week period as I traveled speaking at conferences I tell people I stayed up from 10 at night to 4 in the morning for six weeks, and I wrote that book. And now my editor, uh, bless her, Fern Bradley, she she helped me a lot and juggled things around. You need more here, less there. But I really wrote that book to try and give other farmers some hope. You know, if Gabe Brown can do it, anybody can do it because Gabe isn't that intelligent, you know. And so in the book, I just shared the story of how I met people, you know, the events that took place and how that melded into, you know, growing our operation. And that's what it's really about. You know, you pick up a publication. Can you read something in there, glean something that you can use on your operation? And that's all this dirt to soil is is the story of how we grew our operation and the events that unfolded and led to that. Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soil, which was released in October 2018, is already on its third printing from Chelsea Green Publishing. This podcast is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot BioProven. We all know a few fair-weather folks. They're around when the food comes out. Oh, yeah. Nowhere to be found when the cows are out. With all life's uncertainties, you want a reliable partner. With you, rain or shine. When it comes to nitrogen, there's a new, predictable choice. Pivot Bioproven. The tiny nitrogen-producing microbes that have a big impact on your bottom line. Pivot Bioproven. Predictable. Productive. Weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot Bioproven. Thanks for joining us for the Soil Health Podcast from Successful Farming. I'm Bill Spiegel.